Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 26th, 2023. First, just a bit of housekeeping. With God's help, tonight we are here together. Again, with God's help, a week from tonight, we will be together. But two weeks from tonight, which is February 9th, we will not be together. I will be off a week. And then later, at the end of February and the beginning of March, there will be two Thursday nights in succession that we will not be together. Also, for the morning, there are a number of days that we will not be together around those dates. All of the dates where we're on hiatus are in our emails, on our website, Facebook, and so please check those out uh, to make sure that you have the up-to-date schedule. But the plan, with God's help, tonight we're here, tomorrow morning we're here, next week hopefully we plan to have a regular schedule, after that it changes. I am so glad to be with you tonight. I've been looking forward to this all week. It is the highlight of my week to be able to spend time with you, and I'm grateful to every single one of you for joining. The first piece I want to share tonight is not about politics. It's about our Torah portion, this Shabbos, the Parsha Bo, in a bit of a roundabout way. I hope, regardless of your political views, you will hear the message I want to share with you tonight. I am an American. January 20th, 2021 was a momentous day for me and many others. That was Inauguration Day in the United States. The most surprising element of that day that I was not expecting was hearing for the first time Amanda Gorman, then 23 years old, hearing her recite her poem, The Hill We Climb. As she stood on that inauguration dais in front of the United States Capitol, just three weeks after the events of January 6, 2021, her words were profound. Her performance, the energy of her voice, the acting out of her words with her hands, the effect was mesmerizing. If you have the opportunity, I urge you, please, go to YouTube and watch a recording of that speech. It is unforgettable. Later I learned that Amanda Gorman had a speech defect, an inability to pronounce certain letters. And that's when I thought of Moshe. Throughout the entire Exodus narrative, and the next 40 years of his leadership. Remember that at the very beginning of his connection with this project, 
he said to God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be the person who will lead the Jewish people out of Egypt. Vayomer Moshe Hashem, be Hashem, please God, lo ish tvarim anochi, I'm not comfortable speaking. From a long time, since I was a child, I'm not comfortable speaking. Ki kvad peh ukvad lashon anochi, I have a speech defect, my mouth, my tongue, they don't work properly. Please, choose someone else. Of course, God did not. God chose Moshe. So let's ask two questions. Number one, why would God choose a person, no matter how qualified they are, why would God choose a person who can't speak well? If that is, in fact, one of the major primary central aspects of what this job was, to go to Paro and to speak. If Moshe couldn't do it, why would God choose him? Okay, so there's a simple answer to that question, often given, and that is, this would indicate that the effect was coming from God and God alone. It wasn't due to a charismatic person who could persuade and who could um, uh, impress with his or her elocution and rhetoric. No! It all comes from God. The person speaking is not even able to get the words out so well. Okay, that's a simple answer. It's often given. But let's ask a follow-up. Question number two. After that first conversation where Moshe indicates he doesn't want to do this because of his inability to speak well, for the rest of his years, there is no hint to this inability to speak. On the contrary, he is magnificently successful. What happened to Moshe's speech impediment? And I'd like to suggest to you that Amanda Gorman provides a new answer. Gorman's entire speech that January day echoes and parallels our story of Exodus, both explicitly and implicitly. Gorman said later, she has a mantra, words that she recites to herself every time before she begins to speak. And she starts with two questions that she asks herself. On whose shoulders do I stand? And what do I stand for? And she formulated an answer for herself. And the answer that she formulated for herself to those two questions is the mantra that she repeats and she speaks before every time she starts a performance. And the words go like this. I am the daughter of black riders who are descended from freedom fighters who broke their chains and changed the world. They call me. Those words are also our mantra on Pesach, on Passover. We are the children of slaves 
who were freedom fighters and changed the world, they call us. Listen, please, to just a few lines from her poem and hear the narrative of our Torah portion beneath and between her words. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. In the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always justice. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first, we must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true, that even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped. For while we have eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. So while once we asked, how can we possibly prevail over catastrophe, now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us. But one thing is certain, if we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. When day comes, we step out of the shade aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Please watch a video of her performance. It is simply magnificent. So where did this eloquence and power and depth come to this 23-year-old young woman? Gorman, as a child, had a speech impediment. In an interview, she said that her speech impediment was one reason she was drawn to poetry at a young age. She said, having an arena in which I could express my thoughts freely was just so liberating that I fell head over heels when I was barely a toddler. She said, Maya Angelou, the great poet, Maya Angelou was mute 
growing up as a child, and she grew up to deliver the inaugural poem for President Bill Clinton. So I think that there's a real history, she said, of orators who have had to struggle with the type of imposed voicelessness having that stage in the inauguration. Could it be that God chose Moshe to bring out of him abilities he might never have even realized he had, much less put to revolutionary use? And Gorman's words, referring to America, are likewise a reflection on our own history in Egypt, our present, and our future. I have a student who became my teacher. His name is Abe Mesrich. Allow me to share with you an insight that I learned from my friend and now my teacher, Abe. So the central symbol of Pesach, of Passover, is the commandment in our Torah portion to eat matzah on Pesach. Even the name of the holiday is Chag HaMatzos, the holiday of matzah. Why do we eat matzah on Pesach? Seems like a simple question, right? Everybody knows, right? Well, a close reading of the passage in our Torah portion this week provides a clear but maybe a surprising insight into why we eat matzah on Pesach. God said to Egypt, let my people go to worship me in the desert. And God brought terror on the Egyptians until finally they forced the Jewish people out so that the Jewish people could be with God in the desert, as God had wanted. But please listen carefully to the words of the verses, the Psukim. At Makas Bechoros, that terrible, tragic, traumatic night when the firstborn of Egypt were killed, Paro came and called to Moshe and Aaron, and he said to them, Kumu, get up! It's the middle of the night. Get up and go. Tsuumi tochami. Go out. Leave my nation. Leave my people. It was the middle of the night. It was sudden. So, what did the Jewish people have to do? Well, they had to pack. They had to get ready to leave. Remember, they've been living there for centuries. And here it is, the middle of the night, they have to leave right now. Okay, so let's pack, let's put together a few things, let's prepare some food for the journey, who knows where we're going, how long it will be. The Egyptian people hurried the Jews to leave. Ki amru kulanu mesim, because they said to themselves, if these Jews don't get out of this country right away, all of us may die. 
And so the Jewish people took their dough, which they were about to prepare for bread, to take with them on the journey so they would have food to eat. They took the dough early, quickly, before it had a chance to rise. And they took the dough and they put it on their shoulder and they went, they left. So why do we eat matzah on Pesach? Rashi explains, The Egyptians didn't want the Jews to wait until their dough rose into bread. And he said, go, go, fast, now, 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 go. We're in danger, you must go. So it didn't have a chance to rise. So it was matzah, it wasn't bread. The people of Egypt knew that their only path to safety was for the Jewish people to be with God. So the Egyptians drove the Jewish people toward God before we were ready, before the bread could rise. That's why it was matzah. And here's the practical lesson for every single one of us. Sometimes we're not ready to do something. We're not ready to, for example, follow God. Not yet. There's still bread to make. There's still dough to rise. But just then, someone else might need me to be close to God. And I have to go not for my sake, but for their sake. Then, it's not up to me anymore. It's not up to me to say if I am ready to leave, if I am ready to do what I'm being called to do. Sometimes, our life with God is not always about us. It's about what someone else needs. And that is the lesson of matzah. We ate it. We ate matzah and not bread in order to save others, in order to save Egyptians. And it became a mitzvah to remind us every year that in every area of our lives, Sometimes we're obligated to put the needs of others before our own. Now, at the same time, I've shared with some of you before the famous verse, which we will read later in the book of Ayikra, You should love your fellow as you love yourself. Many of our sages point out, I have to love my fellow. How much? Kamocha, as much as I love myself. What happens if I don't love myself? Well, I'm not going to be able to do very much for someone else. And therefore, implicitly, this verse requires that I have to be able to love myself. I have to be able to have self-love. I have to practice self-care. I've got to take care of myself. I've got to feel good about myself. Of course, some of us 
that's harder at certain moments, but that's what I have to work on. I've got to take care of myself. It's like the advice on an airplane. Put on your oxygen mask first, if necessary, before you put it on someone else like your child, because if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't have the oxygen mask on yourself, you won't be able to help others. But matzah shows us that there needs to be a balance between self-care and selflessness. How do we balance them? Which takes priority? How do we know? So when we think about how to balance those two, self-care and self-love, and I'm sorry, self-care and selflessness, I want to add a path in just one area of life where we can find this balance in perhaps a surprising way. A few years ago, there was an article written by Christina Karen in the New York Times. And she writes that well before the pandemic ever began, experts were warning of an epidemic of loneliness all across North America. In 2019, this is before COVID, Three in five Americans surveyed reported feeling lonely with deep and serious physical and emotional consequences. So Christina writes, there is a potential cure for loneliness. And that is kindness towards others. Something as simple as volunteering has been shown to ease your feelings of loneliness as it broadens our social networks. There was a study of 10,000 volunteers in Britain and two-thirds of them agreed with the assertion that volunteering had helped them feel less isolated. Sam Boyd is the director of volunteer management at Special Olympics Maryland, and she said that she sees volunteers come alive during their shift. When volunteering, you can also get to know more about yourself and broaden your view of the world. And it's so easy. There are so many excellent organizations in our community and in other communities who need volunteers. But even easier, make a plan every day to call or text someone else. Hi, how are you? I'm thinking of you. That's it. That's all you will change your life. Aside from the good that you will do for them, a five-year study of 800 people in Detroit found that helping others who do not live with you can act as a buffer against the negative effects of stress and improve your physical health as well as your emotional health. 
So in at least this example, self-care and selflessness are not opposites. Sometimes putting others' needs before your own can be the best thing you can do for your own well-being. Try it. And tell me if I'm right. Near the end of our Torah portion is the mitzvah of Pidyon Haben, the redemption of the firstborn son. As a result of Makas Bechoros, the plague against the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn son in a family has special obligations for having been saved from that fate. And rightly, they should dedicate their lives to serving God exclusively. See, Porno explains this means that what ought to happen is throughout their entire life of a firstborn Jewish son, there should be no secular work at all, only spiritual work, a life of pure holiness. That is as it should be, according to Siporno. And therefore, the Torah commands, in order to have a normal life, it is necessary to have a ceremony of pidyon haben, redemption of the firstborn. And this consists of a ceremony where five silver coins are donated to a Kohen, someone from the tribe of Kohen, in redemption of a baby boy, in exchange for this baby boy's right to have a normal life. Now, we don't have so many Pidyon Haben ceremonies because the conditions that are necessary to require it are numerous. Number one, it does not apply if the father is a Kohen or a Levi, or the mother is the daughter of a Kohen or the daughter of a Levi. So that automatically knocks out a chunk of Jewish baby boys. It also does not occur when the baby is born through cesarean section. And it is also does not apply if this baby that is born, the first one is a daughter, then the next boy, there is no mitzvah piyinah ben. And also, even if there had been an earlier pregnancy that ended, God forbid, in miscarriage under certain circumstances, that would also follow that the baby boy born after this would not require redemption piyinah ben. So a whole bunch of scenarios where it does not apply. And, and it's rather uncommon which is a shame because it is a very beautiful and enjoyable ceremony. And if it's something that you're not familiar with, if you have the opportunity to attend one, please take that opportunity, especially as compared to a bris, which is, of course, a crucially important mitzvah and very common, I would say, Maybe most of us, perhaps all of us, have attended at least one bris. 
but a bris is often tense. It occurs on the eighth day of the baby boy's life, assuming the baby is healthy. The mother, by the eighth day, may not be feeling well. There is a rush to plan this ceremony with a new baby, which usually means no sleep for both parents. It's frantic, it's hectic, last minute. And even though Baruch Hashem, thank God, a bris done by a moel, one who does ritual circumcision, is very, very safe, but the parents are nervous and they're worried and there is blood and there is crying. But a pig in Haben, redemption of the firstborn, it's a ceremony that takes place after 30 days. It takes place on the 31st day of the baby's life. Although not on Shabbos or Yom Tov, it's pushed to the next day. There's time to plan it. The family is a little bit more calm. It's a, it's a meal, a, a su'uda, a delicious meal that's served to family and friends. And there's a brief ceremony with a kohen there's no crying. There's no blood. It's just fun. Delicious meal. Celebrating the redemption of this baby boy. But there are several elements about this ceremony that are very strange, very curious. The ceremony, which should take place during a meal, that's not absolutely required, but that is the widespread custom that it should be within a meal. The ceremony itself is very brief, is scripted. There's a script, literally, a script for the Kohen and the father of the baby. And it goes like this. The father of the baby holds the baby and says these words. You could say it in English or in Hebrew, but in Hebrew the words are, Zebni b'chori hu peterechem le'imo, this is my son. Firstborn. And the Torah says there's a mitzvah, Pigin Haben. He's saying this to the Kohen while the two of them are standing facing each other, surrounded by everybody else at the meal. So he says, This is my son. He's a firstborn, subject to the mitzvah, and the Torah says he must be redeemed. So the Kohen says to the father, reading from this script, My biased fay. Which would you prefer? You get a choice. There's door number one and there's door number two. First choice is, You can give your son to me. Or, oh, oh, door number two, Or, you can redeem him and be able to keep him by giving me the five silver coins as the Torah requires. Okay, so the Kohen gives the father a choice. And the father says, the father says, again, let's read from the text so we don't make any mistakes. I want to redeem my child. Take this money as a redemption as the Torah obligates me. And holding the redemption money before the father gives the coins to the Kohen, he says a bracha, and then gives the coins to the Kohen. Then the Kohen makes a bracha on wine, a cup of wine, and then the Kohen puts his hand on the head of the baby and gives the baby a blessing. 
That's the ceremony. Okay. Beautiful, lovely, short, no crying, no blood. Very nice. The text is, is curious, bizarre. My boyest fay. The going says to the father, which do you prefer? First of all, leaving aside the fact that in truth, there is no choice involved here. That the father is required, according to the Torah, to redeem his son. And in fact, if somehow the father would refuse, it is not true that the Kohen is going to take this boy home. That is just not true. But the, the Kohen says these words in every single and Ben. My boy is today. What do you prefer? Which do you choose? What kind of a question is that? Which do you choose? You want me to take your son or you give me five coins and you can keep your son? What kind of a question is that? Rabbi Yochanan Zweig and a number of other scholars indicate that this is really a, a subterfuge to elicit from the father these words, ani liftos esbini. I want to redeem my child. I want my child to live a normal life raised by his father, his mother, his family. We want the father to verbalize out loud among the family and friends this choice now because there will be many moments in the future when the father and the mother will be tempted to choose or to give in to other priorities over their children for money, for career, for social standing. This dialogue seeks to cement the order of priority parents should follow for the rest of their lives. That's why we want the father to say these words out loud right now. Because it will it's all too likely that it will not always be true. Rabbi Yisachar Fran tells the story of a religious attorney in a high-powered law firm. He was walking home from shul on Rosh Hashanah with his young son. And the father said to his son, what did you daven for in shul today? This morning was Rosh Hashanah. What did you pray for? What did you ask God for in the coming year? And the boy said, I prayed for two things. I prayed that Mashiach should come and I prayed that your office should close down. We need the reminder. And it's good to have that reminder in public near the very beginning of a child's life. The second curious element of opinion I've been that I'd like to address very briefly tonight Earlier, I quoted the Sipurno, who says that this redemption enables the child to engage in secular work. Before the redemption, without the redemption, this child would be theoretically obligated to live a life of pure holiness, pure spirituality. As a result of the redemption, the child can now have a normal life, a mundane life, Go to school, 
go to work, have a family. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky asks a very simple question. What kind of a celebration is this? Why are we celebrating this redemption? It sounds like something that we should be sad about. You have a child who is kadosh, who is holy, who's way up here spiritually, and we are doing a ceremony where that child is being lowered, is being profaned, is being reduced from a status of holy to a status of mundane, of chol, chulin. Before the redemption, he's purely holy, purely sacred, and now he's a regular boy. What kind of a celebration should we be having? It sounds like it should be something we would mourn, we would be sad about. So listen, please, to the answer of Yaakov gives, because it is fundamental. There are other religions besides ours that see a dichotomy between the holy and the mundane. And they see a conflict between the two, between the holy and the mundane, between the pure and the impure, between the body and the soul. And they believe that this conflict should be resolved by denigrating the physical, the mundane, the material. It's only the spiritual that is significant. Judaism does not agree with that. We say the highest level of spirituality, the reason that a person is put here in this earth, in this world, is to blend body and soul, to combine spiritual and physical. Not that the body and soul should negate each other, warring over which will be supreme, but rather that the soul, the spiritual, should influence the physical body in order that there be a synthesis. Rabbi Avram Cook, first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, used the phrase that our goal in life is letaher et hachol, to raise the mundane with the influence of spiritual, not to separate them, but to combine them and have one influence the other the highest spiritual goal in the life of a Jewish person is not to rid themselves from physicality, to remove themselves from the mundane. No, it is rather to sanctify the physicality in our lives, to infuse the mundane with holiness. And eating, for example, which is purely mundane and physical, but when we use it to celebrate Shabbos, when we use it to entertain guests and to show uh, uh, hospitality to guests, we are elevating that mundane activity into a spiritual one. Sleeping is a physical need, but when we go to sleep in order to have enough strength to be able to study Torah, to be able to do mitzvot, to be able to pray, to be able to help other people, then we're taking a mundane activity and we are infusing it with spirituality. When we go to work at whatever secular mundane task we may have, but through the honesty with which we perform it, and through the ethical behavior with which we practice it, we are raising that 
physical mundane activity into a spiritual act. The truth is, if you have the chance to attend a Pigyan Aben, don't miss it. And even if you don't have this opportunity, the message of this mitzvah is crucial because here's the truth. God has plenty of angels. God doesn't need us to be angels. God needs us to be human with weakness, with needs, with shortcomings, and to elevate ourselves in this mundane world through this physical material world. That is what God wants from us. That is what God needs from us. And we human beings are the only ones that can do that. Angels cannot do that. We have the potential. And only we have the potential to do what God really needs. To infuse the mundane and raise it with spirituality. The purpose and goal of a Piyin Aben is to demonstrate that a baby boy that is totally pure and spiritual, that's not the goal. Come down, descend into normal life, and imbue that with holiness. That's the task that God sets for every single one of us. And the Pinyin Aben ceremony describes and expresses that task. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a lovely Shabbos, and I look forward to seeing you soon in person.